1, verses 26 to 31. For those who perhaps are here for the first time or were here last week, but sadly we weren't here, but have joined again this week, um, we are jumping into a sermon series and I started at the beginning of January. And in the first installment of this uh, series, I said that we live in a world that is totally confused. I want to emphasize that it is a world that is totally confused. And we as Christians are not immune to that because many of us are confused at times about the world that we live in and our position in this world. Therefore, as a church, we are going back to the beginning to the book of beginnings to find clarity in an age of confusion. And I think the confusion of our world can be seen the most when we talk about ourselves, about human beings, and what it means to be a human being. We ask questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is our relationship to the world, to animals, and to others? What does it mean to be a human being? So for that reason, let's listen to what God has to say about humankind by reading his word together from Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus reads God's word. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we want to thank you that you've revealed yourself as a God of order. Here in Genesis chapter 1, everything is perfectly ordered. You are not a God of confusion. So in this world of confusion that we currently find ourselves in, O oh God, we ask that through your word, you would bring clarity to our minds, especially as we consider who we are and our position in your world. And we pray that this would ultimately bring Jesus all the glory. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we've been seeing together, Genesis 1 proclaims that the God we live for and it explains the world that we live in. It also makes plain who we are as humans, beings. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, we learn that God created humankind on the sixth day. And the entire creation narrative builds towards this last act of creation where the creator creates the crown of his creation. And in this passage, we learn four truths that explain who we are as humans. Four truths which provide clarity in our age of confusion. Four truths that answer the question, who am I? So if you're taking notes... It's a very simple outline. Four truths from Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 31. Truth number one, you are, as a human being, a unique creature. You are a unique creature. And it's hard to imagine that because nowadays we are taught that, that we simply evolved from apes. Humans have bigger brains than animals and are able to walk upright. But fundamentally, so people say, there is nothing unique about humankind. Activists, therefore, tell us and argue that animals are just as important as humans. So in 2021, when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban yet again, dogs were put on a flight to the UK instead of crying humans. Animals and humans are equal in the eyes of our society. God's word, however, declares that humans are not the same as animals. Although both are creatures who are accountable to their creator, there is something different, something special, something unique about humankind. We didn't evolve by accident. Rather, we are fearfully, wonderfully, purposely, and uniquely made by our wise creator. The creation narrative in Genesis 1 makes a sharp distinction between humans and animals to emphasize that humans are unique. Notice, for example, in verse 26, that there is divine uh, thought uh, before the creation of humankind. We read in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Usually the narrative is saying, Let there be, let there be light, and there was light. But here on sixth day, at the crown of God's creation, he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. The plural pronouns here probably refer to Uh, to a conversation between the three persons of the Godhead, a truth that will unfold throughout the rest of the Bible. So here in Genesis chapter 1, we already have glimmerings of, 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 of one God who exists eternally in three persons. Well, God the Father is the main subject of Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God, as we saw in week 2, is already mentioned in verse 2. Later in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, for example, we learn that all things were created through and for Jesus, the Son of God. All three persons of the Godhead then were involved in the creation of the world and talked before creating humans. And we have to say, why? Why is it different here? Because human beings, we are unique. Verses 26 and 27 also tell us that humans alone were created in the image of God. Verse 28 tells us that humans alone were given dominion over the rest of creation. 
Verse 29 tells us that God personally spoke to humans. And against the, the, the entire pattern of the narrative, verse 31 informs us that God saw everything that he had made and concluded that it was very good. Notice the break. It was good, day one. It was good, day two. It was good, day three, and so on. Day six, and God concluded it was very good. Clearly, God's word doesn't say that humans evolved from apes. Rather, it emphatically declares that human beings are unique creatures, that you, as a man or as a woman, are a unique creature of Almighty God. And this truth greatly challenges the implications of evolution, doesn't it? Because since you are a unique creature of Almighty God, you have immense value. Cambridge graduate, PhD, who wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, says this behind me. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin says, from a Christian perspective, my daughter is a bag of cells, but she is not just cells. She is dust, but she is not just dust. Indeed, the Bible insists that our dust-formed cells have immense and in alienable value, not because we are not atoms and molecules, bags of cells, or dust, but because we are dust that has been fashioned by God and called to a unique relationship with him. Friend, you are valuable to God because you are his unique creature a unique creature who God cares for as demonstrated by him giving you what you need to live in. Look at verse 29 of Genesis 1, uh, for example. And God said, Behold, I have given you, man and woman, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Do you see here how God cares for his unique creature? And we've been talking about over, over the weeks about the, the background of the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, all the, all the myths say that man was created to supply the gods with food. But here, Genesis 1 tells us that God supplies man with food. And God continues to care for humans today by giving us rains from heaven and fruitful seasons Theologians call this God's common grace, and God's common grace reminds us that our good creator cares for us, his unique creatures. And if you're a Christian today, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are doubly valuable to God, because not only are you a unique creature, but you are a precious child of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 26. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, Christian, not of more value than they? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus provides an argument from, from, from the least to the greatest, to encourage his followers not to worry. He says, since the birds of the air are daily provided for, you as a Christian, 
who are of more value than they can be assured that God will take care of you and supply your every need. Are you anxious today? Worried about this week? Concerned about the future? Well, look at the birds and remind yourself that you are a unique creature of immense value who God daily cares for. Truth number one, you are a unique creature. Truth number two, you are, as a human being, an image bearer of Almighty God. You are an image bearer. And above all, this is why humankind is different from the rest of creation. Humans alone are said to be created in the image of God. Look again at Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The terms image and likeness there are interchangeable, as observed later on in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, where they're, where they're switched. They They're referring to the same thing, that we as humans are created to bear God's image. The next verse, Genesis 1.27, says this. It provides a summary. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see it? God created both men and women equally in his image. There's no hierarchy here. They're both created equally in the image of God. So we're faced with the question, what exactly is the image of God? Well, the image of God is Jesus Christ himself. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Humankind, on the other hand, um, was created, verse 26 of Genesis 1, in God's image, after God's likeness. And these prepositions in verse 26 are very important because they tell us that human beings are not the image of God. Rather, we are an imitation of the true image, Jesus Christ. The prepositions point beyond us and they point ultimately to Jesus. We are only image bearers. Therefore, if we want to understand what it means to be created in the image of God, we must look to Jesus. Many theologians throughout church history have realized this point, and they have, they, they have sought to provide an explanation of what it means to be in the image of God. Let me quickly uh, give you four popular interpretations. I think they will be on the screen behind me. First, some define throughout church history image as a particular quality shared between God and humans, but not humans and animals. For example, it could be reason. We, unlike animals, have the mental powers to reason. Or the reformers talked about original righteousness. That is what the image is. The drawback with this understanding is that those who do not have the particular quality, for example, uh, the unborn or mentally impaired, are no longer image bearers. An implication that contradicts the testimony of Scripture, which asserts that all humans are created in the image of God. Another option is that the image uh, is defined in terms of dominion. Theologians appeal to Genesis 1, 26, and 28, uh, where 
where, where God commands his image bearers to rule over his creation. So they conclude that, that the image is our dominion. Dominion, however, to me, seems to be a consequence of the image and not the content of it. In other words, God created humans in his image so that we can exercise dominion over his creation. Third option, uh, popularized by Karl Barth, the German theologian, says that humanity in God's image means that we are, we, we are in a relationship with one another as male and female, a relationship on earth that, 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 that imitates, replicates the heavenly relationship between the three persons of the Godhead. I know that although this understanding is true in, in Genesis 1, is not present in other image passages, such as James 3, verse 9. So for that reason, I find it unconvincing. More recently, and there's beginning to be a consensus more recently, people talk about the image in terms of connection. A famous guy called John Kilner wrote a book called uh, uh, Destiny and Dignity, and he defined the image as, as, as our special connection with God, which allows an intended reflection of God. And a few of you know, um, when I first came to the River of Life, I was doing my master thesis, and I did it on the image of God, and, and argued that the biblical evidence, both in the Old and New Testament, reveals that the image of God was not affected by sin. I believe that it was not lost in the fall or spoiled by Adam's sin. And in light of this observation, I defined the image following that connection aspect as humanity's God-given ability to enjoy a unique relationship with him. And so that's what I believe the image is, that, that it is God's, uh, it's, it's humanity's God-given innate ability to enjoy a unique relationship with him. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, humankind enjoyed a unique relationship with God. But then came the fall in Genesis chapter 3, after which every human is born separated from God because of Adam's sin. However, the innate ability, the God-given ability to enjoy a unique relationship with God was not lost or marred in the fall. The relationship was affected, but the innate ability was not Rather, the God-given ability is present in all people and moves to a lived experience only through faith in God's Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of his people and was raised from the dead three days later. And this definition, I believe, best retains the dignity of every man and woman from the unborn to the elderly. Now, I'll take a quick break there so I'm not nerding you all out here. Lots of definitions, lots to take in. But if there's anything I want you to take away from this, maybe some of you like the ideas of the definitions. It's there for some of you. Most of us don't. But the one thing we must take away is that the image of God is retained in humanity and therefore humanity is to be respected and cared for because we have an innate dignity Throughout history, the image of God has in, been inseparably connected with ethics that we respect one another because we are created in the image of God. Therefore, and this is the application, therefore, murder is wrong because it kills an image bearer. 
Listen to what Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for the reason why God made man in his own image. It's after the fall, still applies. If you murder someone, death penalty can come to you. Why? Because you're still made in God's image. And if you look throughout recent history, we can see that when you strip someone of their image-bearing status, you can justify their murder. Nazi Germany, for example, exterminated over six million Jews because they saw them as subhuman, untermenschen. They stripped their dignity, their image-bearing status, which allowed the population to carry through. More recently, millions of babies have been aborted because people think that the unborn baby is simply medical waste that needs to be disposed of. The unborn and Jews, though, the Bible says, are image bearers, so should be protected and respected. And there are so many ethical implications of this second truth. It challenges how we, how we should think about, how we should talk about, and how we should interact with other image bearers. For example, migrant smuggling, well, it's wrong because it exploits image bearers. Pornography is sinful because it humiliates and injures those involved as image bearers. Sexist, racist, and homophobic comments are also unacceptable because they curse individuals made in the image of God. And James makes this exact point in chapter 3 of his letter in the New Testament. There, James discusses the harm that the tongue can do and says in James, first, uh, James chapter 3, verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is arguing it is inconsistent to bless God one moment, for example, here in the congregation, and then curse God, uh, uh, and then curse someone the next moment who is made in the image of God. It's inconsistent to come to church and bless God, and then go outside and shout a racist slur at someone on the street. Why? Because on one thing you're you're blessing God, and in the next thing you're cursing someone made in the image of God. And friends, all of us, if we really think about it as the Spirit convicts us, all of us have harmed fellow image bearers in our minds, by our words, and even through our actions. So we must come to God, and we must ask him to forgive us through his only son, Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is clear. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God-given ability to enjoy a unique relationship with him will only become a reality when we come through Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, absolutely no one, comes to the Father except through me. So, fellow image bearer, have you been reconciled to your creator? 
Have you come to the Father through faith in the Son? Well, if not, today is the day of your salvation. The Bible commands you to to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Take hold today of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Then and only then will you be able to live rightly as an image bearer and treat others the way you would have them treat you. Truth number two, you are an image bearer. Truth number three, you are, as a human being, a gendered being. You are a gendered being. Before the 1950s, the term sex and gender were, were interchangeable. Now, however, they are, they are separated. Today, biological sex refers to the physical and biological dimensions of being male and female. Gender, on the other hand, is, is regarded as the, as the cultural understanding of what it means to be male and female. However, this recent separation of terms and invention of new terms attacks God's design for humankind. Friends, we must remember that that God alone is our creator, so he alone rightly defines the terms. Ultimate authority rests with God and his facts, not with us and our feelings. Therefore, instead of listening to our government on this subject, we should always listen to our God because after all, he is the one who has created us. And according to Genesis chapter 1, God created us as gendered beings. He purposely created sex and gender as inextricably linked. The two are united and must not be divided. Look at Genesis 1, 27 with me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice here that there are only two sexes, male and female. And this fits with the, with, with the pattern of creation already laid out in the creation narrative. We saw a creator and creature, light and darkness, evening and morning, and now male and female. Gender then is not a spectrum. And the very rare and sad condition of an intersex individual is a tragic result of the fall. But as one writer says, in human biology, changes or exemptions do not nullify categories. You are born a man, or you are born a woman. And please notice also the position of this first, Genesis 1.27. It takes place in the beginning, before societies existed. Therefore, gender is not a social construct. This first occurs in Genesis 1, before the fall in Genesis 3. Therefore, maleness and femaleness are not sinful categories. After God saw everything he had made, including his gendered beings, he concluded, according to verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, that it was very good. Gender, then, is a blessing. It is a good gift from Almighty God, our Creator. And some people like to dismiss the teaching of Genesis because they say it's in the Old Testament, and they think that 
that, that Jesus didn't say anything about gender in the New Testament. And if that describes you today, someone who, who puts Jesus above Genesis, then listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 4. When he was asked the question about divorce, Jesus answered, Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He doesn't dismiss Genesis, nor is he silent about gender. Rather, using Genesis, Jesus affirms that there are only two genders, male and female. Jesus declares that there are only two genders because he only created two genders. And parents in the room, you need to teach your children the truth of God's word. I don't want to go off on a, on a cultural, cultural thing there, but just simple application. You need to teach your children these truths because if you don't, our confused world are going to teach them these truths. If it's not in their schools, it's most definitely by their shows. You must teach them that God created us as gendered beings and to live a life that embraces his good design for gender. I say that we, we live in an age that is confused and, and Christians are confused because, because they don't think God's word addresses the movements in our day. But yet here in Genesis 1, the first book of the Bible, God's word clearly addresses the lies of the modern transgender movement. As Christians then, we must also do so clearly. Transgenderism rejects God's good design. It dismisses God's true word. And it ultimately insults God's glorious gospel, which teaches that Jesus is the bridegroom of his bride, his church. And anyone, therefore, who embraces or affirms a transgender identity sins against their creator. And this particular sin, however, is not, and I repeat, it is not beyond the forgiveness and restoration of God. As we've already heard, if you confess your sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the message that we are to share with our confused world. We clearly explain God's good design of gender and we confidently proclaim God's good news of restoration through Jesus Christ. And let me be clear about this too. We share this message compassionately. More than anyone else in this world, we as Christians should love those who identify as transgender. Not because of their perceived identity, but because of their received identity as fellow image bearers, truth number two. So therefore, as a church, we should have genuine compassion for those who suffer with gender dysphoria, a tragic result of the fall. Compassion, however, does not mean compromise. Genesis 1.27 clearly states that our creator created us to be gendered beings. So truth number one, you are a unique creature. As a unique creature, you are an image bearer. As an image bearer, God has created you as a gendered being. Fourthly and finally, 
you are, as a human being, a steward of God's creation. If you're in the city center on the weekend, you will always encounter a protest of some kind. So our friend was here a couple of weeks ago, and we were down at the Hopvaca, um, the Dome Romer, and uh, there was a protest for, against fur. So they were shouting, uh, we are here and we are loud. In German, it was very catchy. Everyone was there with a marching band, and, and they were going to a place which sells fur to confront them about selling fur. So then we walked, and we went to, um, yeah, I think it was up near the Hopvaca, and there was a, pro, uh, a pro-Israel protest. And then go around the corner to the opera house. There was one against discrimination of women and Iran. And whether it's big or small, there will normally be somewhere in Frankfurt at the weekend, a climate change protest. And at that gathering, you will hear how our house is on fire because of the way that we have acted And if we don't change our ways, then we, to quote Greta Thunberg, will be in a position where we will set off an irreversible chain reaction beyond human control that will most likely lead to the end of our civilization as we know it. So the concluding words in these protests is, we must change. We are the saviors of the world. They don't use that language, but that's the implication. That's the claim. Humankind is the saviour of the world. And against this claim, God's word declares that Jesus alone is the saviour of the world. Humans are not saviours of the world, but it does say that we are stewards of the world. God made us to look after his creation. We see this in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and Genesis 1, 28. Look at verse 28 with me. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God blessed at the end of the sixth day, God blessed the crown of his creation by giving humankind the ability to reproduce. Therefore, we are commanded, Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply we're going to park that idea here for now, and we're going to revisit that, God willing, April time when we're back from South Africa, when we, when, when we look at God's good design for marriage. But also notice that there's a related command in verse 28. As, as humans reproduce, they are to rule over the rest of creation, over swimming things and, and flying things created on the fifth day and over living things created on the sixth day. God created humans alone to be the stewards of his creation. What does it mean to be a steward of God's creation? Well, there are two words in verse 28 that explain our task. The first word, if you look at it with me, is the word subdue. As humans, we are to subdue the earth. In other words, we are to make the earth's resources beneficial for us and for others. God has made natural resources for us, so we are to use them to build and produce things to his glory. Whether it's mud houses way, way back in the day, whether it's modern houses today, whether it's the brick phone or whether it's the fancy iPhone 
where he continually to, to, to subdue and continually to use the resources with, with, with creativity to flourish, to produce, to build things to God's glory. And the second word in verse 28 keeps us from misunderstanding the first, and it's the word dominion, control. In other words, our authority is to be like God's authority, which doesn't exploit the world, but cares for it. So as we make use of all that God has given to us in the earth, as we subdue it, we shouldn't overdo it. That rhymed, not intentional. Instead, we should take steps like, for example, recycling to actively care for the environment. Or after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God allowed humans to, uh, to eat animals, but that doesn't mean that we can treat animals harshly. Instead, we should care for them as we rule over them as God's appointed stewards. I think to give a picture in your mind of what stewardship looks like is, is to hold up that relationship between a landlord and a tenant between your landlord here in Frankfurt and you as the tenant. As the landlord, God owns the earth because he created it. And he has allowed us to live on the earth. So as tenants, we have a responsibility to care for it. There are guidelines and boundaries for our goods set out by the landlord. But there is also freedom to enjoy and flourish in our home to the praise and glory of the landlord. So, just as you wouldn't intentionally, I hope, pollute your home with rubbish, so we shouldn't intentionally pollute the earth. Just as you wouldn't intentionally, I hope, abuse your pets, so we shouldn't abuse God's creatures. Just as you wouldn't want to harm members of your own household, so we shouldn't want to intentionally harm fellow image bearers. And I'm not going to go off and say, you must do this and you must do that and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. But I'm going to ask that God, by his spirit, will help you apply this truth to your own life so that you can live this, like the steward that he has created you to be. He is the landlord. He is the creator. And we are his tenants. We are the stewards. And ultimately, as, as Christians, we should care for the earth not because it's mother nature, but because it's our father's creation. We love God by keeping his commandments, Jesus tells us, so we can show our love to him by, by caring for his creation and fulfilling the cultural mandate set out in Genesis chapter 1. Friend, you are, as a human being, a steward of God's creation. So live like it in our confused world. And as we've heard today, the unsettling implications and, and unanswered questions of, of racism, trans, uh, transgenderism, and environmentalism, well, they're all addressed here in the beginning, in the book of beginnings. They're all addressed when we truly understand who we are as humans, not as defined by our subjective feelings or scientific facts, but as defined by our sovereign creator. Since God alone is our creator, he alone can tell us who we truly are. Therefore, in this age of confusion, listen to who God says you are 
through his word. Embrace this stable identity through faith in Christ. Friend, you are a unique creature. You are an image bearer. You are a gendered being. And you are a steward of God's creation. So live like it. Live like the crown of his creation to the praise and glory of our creator alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for clarity in your word. We have wrestled with some difficult topics of God, some controversial topics, both in our minds, but most particularly in our world. But Lord, we do pray that we would listen to your word above everything else.